0: This is the Fabulous People Horror Stories Podcast. Welcome, you fabulous person. I'm delighted you're here. I'm Robert Crandall. I hope you'll share this episode with a friend. There is a link to this episode on the website, horrorstoriespodcast.com. And all the episodes are available on the website. You know, back in June 12th of 2015, I published Edgar Allan Poe's story titled The Mask of the Red Death. And it has been getting a lot of downloads uh, since we published it back then. But it has really shot up the charts, as they say. It's uh, now number six on the all-time downloads ranking, probably due to the pandemic, because the story is about a plague. And if you go to the website, there is a menu for Edgar Allan Poe. Just click on the menu, and the Mask of the Red Death is the second on the list. And it is, it is a chilling story, it really is. Of course, it's Edgar Allan Poe, is, uh, so you would expect that, and it doesn't let you down. It's a story about a plague, and it is, uh, yeah, that's probably why it has shot up to number six in the all time. I hope you enjoy it, and while you're there, uh, be sure to binge. Yeah, stick around and binge for a while on the website, and I hope you'll... Do that and have fun. Now a word from our sponsor, me. (laughs) I do voiceovers for just about anything. Been doing some uh, website stuff for people and promos uh, uh, for various things. And if you need something for your website or radio, TV commercials, or just about anything, get a hold of me at robertcc at gmail.com. Robert is kind of a weird name. I know it's R-O-B-E-A-R-C-C. You know, when you're trying to figure out a, a name for an email or something, there are every combination of Robert or Bob or Rob or any are just about exhausted. And so that one came up and people, people have called me Robert for all my life. And among other things, and some other things we don't want to talk about. But anyway, get a hold of me at robertcc at gmail.com. And you can send me anything if you comment on the show or whatever. Uh, be sure uh, you're always your comments are always welcome. And now, for our feature story. In this story, a man goes on vacation, and the only room available in the hotel is Is one with two beds. Believe me, you'll never look at any bed again in the same way you do now. I hope you enjoy The Other Bed by E.F. Benson. I had gone out to Switzerland just before Christmas. Expecting from experience a month of divinely renovating weather, of skating all day in brilliant sun, and basking in the hot frost of that windless atmosphere. Occasionally, as I knew, there might be a snowfall, which would last perhaps for 48 hours at the outside, and would be succeeded by another 10 days of cloudless perfection. Cold even to zero at night but irradiated all day long by the unflecked splendor of the sun. Instead, the climatic conditions were horrible. Day after day a gale screamed through this upland valley that should have been so windless and serene, bringing with it a tornado of sleet that changed to snow by night. For ten days there was no abatement of it. And evening after evening, as I consulted my barometer, feeling sure that the black finger would show that we were coming to an end of these abominations. I found that it had sunk a little lower yet till it stayed, like a homing pigeon, on the S of storm. I mention these things in depredation of the story that follows, in order that the intelligent reader may say at once, if he wishes that all that occurred was merely a result of the malaise of nerves and the digestion that perhaps arose from the storm-bound and disturbing conditions. And now, to go back to the beginning again. I had written to engage a room at the hotel beau and had been agreeably surprised on arrival to find that for the modest sum of twelve francs a day I was allotted a room on the first floor with two beds in it. Otherwise the hotel was quite full. Fearing to be billeted into a twenty-two franc room by mistake, I instantly confirmed my arrangements at the Bureau. There was no mistake. I had ordered a twelve-franc room, and had been given one, the very civil clerk hoped that I was satisfied with it, for otherwise there was nothing vacant. I hastened to say that I was more than satisfied, fearing the fate of Esau. I arrived about three in the afternoon of a cloudless and glorious day, the last of the series. I hurried down to the rink, having had the prudence to put skates in the forefront of my luggage, and spent a divine, but struggling hour or two, coming up to the hotel about sunset. I had letters to write, and after ordering tea to be sent up to my gorgeous apartment, number 23, on the first floor, I went straight up there. The door was ajar, and I feel certain I should not even remember this now except in the light of what followed. Just as I got close to it, I heard some faint movement, "'inside the room and instinctively knew "'that my servant was there unpacking. "'Next moment I was in the room myself "'and it was empty. "'The unpacking had been finished "'and everything was neat, orderly, and comfortable. "'My barometer was on the table "'and I observed with dismay "'that it had gone down nearly half an inch.' I did not give another thought to the movement I thought I had heard from the outside. Certainly I had a delightful room for my twelve francs a day. There were, as I have said, two beds in it. On one of which were already laid out my dress clothes, while the night things were disposed on the other. There were two windows between which stood a large washing stand with plenty of room on it. A sofa with its back to the light stood conveniently near the pipes of central heating. There were a couple of good armchairs, a writing table, and the rarest of luxuries, another table, so that every time one had breakfast it was not necessary to pile up a drift of books and papers to make room for the tray. My window looked east, and sunset still flamed on the western faces of the virgin snows, while above it, in spite of the dejected barometer, the sky was bare of clouds, and a thin slip of pale crescent moon was swung high among the stars that still burned dimly in these first moments of their kindling. Tea came up for me without delay, and as I ate, I regarded my surroundings with extreme complacency. Then, quite suddenly and without cause, I saw that the disposition of the beds would never do. I could not possibly sleep in the bed that my servant had chosen for me, and without pause I jumped up, transferred my dress clothes to the other bed, and put my night things where they had been. It was done breathlessly almost— and not till then did I ask myself why I had done it. I found that I had not the slightest idea. I had merely felt that I could not sleep in the other bed, but having made the change, I felt perfectly content. My letters took me an hour or so to finish. I had yawned and blinked considerably over the last one or two, in part from their inherent dullness in part from quite natural sleepiness, for I had been in the train for twenty-four hours, and was fresh to these bracing airs, which so conduced to appetite, activity, and sleep, and there was still an hour before I need dress. I lay down on my sofa, with a book for excuse, but the intention to slumber as reason, and consciousness ceased, as if a tap had been turned off. Then I dreamed. I dreamed that my servant came very quietly into the room to tell me no doubt it was time to dress. I suppose there were a few minutes to spare yet, and that he saw I was dozing, for instead of rousing me, he moved quietly about the room, setting things in order. The light appeared to be very dim, for I could not see him with any distinctness. Indeed, I only knew it was he, because it could not be anybody else. Then he paused by my washing-stand, which had a shelf for brushes and razors above it, and I saw him take a razor from its case and begin stropping it. The light was strongly reflected on the blade of the razor, HE TRIED THE EDGE ONCE OR TWICE ON HIS THUMBNAIL, AND THEN TO MY HORROR I SAW HIM TRYING IT ON HIS THROAT. INSTANTANEOUSLY ONE OF THOSE DEAFENING DREAM CRASHES AWOKE ME, AND I SAW THE DOOR HALF OPEN, AND MY SERVANT, IN THE VERY ACT OF COMING IN. NO DOUBT THE OPENING OF THE DOOR HAD CONSTITUTED THE CRASH. I had joined a previously arrived party of five, all of us old friends and accustomed to see each other often, and at dinner and afterwards in intervals of bridge the conversation roamed agreeably over a variety of topics, rocking turns and the prospects of weather, a thing of vast importance in Switzerland, and not a commonplace subject, and the performances at the opera and under what circumstances, as revealed in Dummy's hand, it is justifiable for a player to refuse to return his partner's original lead in no trumps. Then over whiskey and soda and the repeated last cigarette, it veered back via the Zanzigs to thought transference and the transference of emotion. Here one of the party, Harry Lambert, put forward the much-discussed explanation of haunted houses, based on this principle. He put it very concisely. Everything that happens, he said, whether it's a step we take or a thought that crosses our minds makes some change in it, immediate and material world. Now the most violent and concentrated emotion we can imagine is the emotion that leads a man to take so extreme a step as killing himself or somebody else. I can easily imagine such a deed so eating into the material scene, the room or the haunted heath where it happens, that its mark lasts an enormous time. The air rings with the cry of the slain and still drips with his blood. It is not everybody who will perceive it, but sensitives will. By the way... I'm sure that man who waits on us at dinner is a sensitive. It was already late, and I rose. Let us hurry him to the scene of a crime, I said. For myself I shall hurry to the scene of sleep. Outside, the threatening promise of the barometer was already finding fulfillment, and a cold, ugly wind was complaining among the pines and hooting around the peaks, and snow had begun to fall. The night was thickly overcast, and it seemed as if uneasy presences were going to and fro in the darkness. But there was no use of ill augury, and certainly if we were to be housebound for a few days I was lucky in having so commodious a lodging. I had plenty to occupy myself with indoors, though I should vastly have preferred to be engaged outside, and in the immediate present how good it was to lie free in a proper bed after a cramped night in the train. I was half undressed when there came a tap at my door, and the waiter who had served us at dinner came in carrying a bottle of whisky, he was a tall young fellow, and though I had not noticed him at dinner, I saw at once, as he stood in the glare of the electric light, what Harry had meant when he said he was sure he was a sensitive. There is no mistaking that look. It is exhibited in a peculiar inlooking of the eye. Those eyes, one knows, see further than the surface. "'The bottle of whiskey for monsieur.' he said, putting it down on the table. But I ordered no whiskey, said I. He looked puzzled. Number twenty-three, he said. Then he glanced at the other bed. Ah, for the other gentleman, without doubt, he said. But there is no other gentleman, said I. I am alone here. He took up the bottle again. Pardon, monsieur, he said. ''There must be a mistake. I am new here. I only came today.'' ''But I thought...'' ''Yes,'' said I. ''I thought that No. 23 had ordered a bottle of whisky,'' he repeated. ''Good night, monsieur, and pardon.'' I got into bed, extinguished the light, in feeling very sleepy and heavy with the oppression, no doubt, of the snow that was coming expected to fall asleep at once. Instead, my mind would not quite go to roost, but kept sleepily stumbling about among the little events of the day, as some tired pedestrian in the dark stumbles over stones instead of lifting his feet. And as I got sleepier, it seemed to me that my mind kept moving in a tiny little circle. At one moment it drowsily recollected, how I had thought I had heard movement inside my room. At the next, it remembered my dream of some figure going stealthily about and stropping a razor. At a third, it wondered why this Swiss waiter, with the eyes of a sensitive, thought that number 23 had ordered a bottle of whiskey but at the time I made no guess as to any coherence between these little isolated facts. I only dwelt on them with drowsy persistence. Then a fourth fact came to join the sleepy circle, and I wondered why. I had felt a repugnance against using the other bed. But there was no explanation of this forthcoming either and the outlines of thought grew more blurred and hazy until I lost consciousness altogether. Next morning began the series of awful days in sleep and snow, falling relentlessly with gusts of chilly wind, making any outdoor amusement next to impossible. The snow was too soft for tobogganing, it balled on the skis, and as for the rink, it was but a series of pools of slushy snow. This in itself, of course, was quite enough to account for any ordinary depression and heaviness of spirit, but all the time I felt there was something more than that to which I owed the utter blackness that hung over those days. I was beset, too, by fear that at first was only vague, but which gradually became more definite until it resolved itself into a fear of number twenty-three, and in particular a terror of the other bed. I had no notion of why or how I was afraid of it. The thing was perfectly causeless. But the shape and the outline of it grew slowly clearer, as detail after detail of ordinary life, each minute and trivial in itself, carved and molded this fear till it became definite. Yet the whole thing was so causeless and childish that I could speak to no one of it. I could but assure myself that it was all a figment of nerves disordered by this unseemly weather. However, as to the details, there were plenty of them. Once I woke up from a strangling nightmare, unable at first to move, but in a panic of terror, believing that I was sleeping in the other bed more than once, too, awakening before I was called and getting out of bed to look at the aspect of the morning. I saw with a sense of dreadful misgiving that the bedclothes on the other bed were strangely disarranged, as if someone had slept there and smoothed them down afterwards, but not so well as to not give notice of the occupation. So one night I laid a trap, so to speak, for the intruder for which the real object was to calm my own nervousness, for I still told myself that I was frightened of nothing, and tucked in the sheet very carefully, laying the pillow on top of it. But in the morning it seemed as if my interference had not been to the taste of the occupant, for there was more impatient disorder than usual in the bedclothes, and on the pillow was an indentation, round and rather deep, such as we may see any morning in our own beds. Yet by day these things did not frighten me, but it was when I went to bed at night that I quaked at the thought of further developments. It happened also from time to time that I wanted something brought me or wanted my servant. On three or four of these occasions my bell was answered by the sensitive, as we called him but the sensitive, I had noticed, never came into the room. He would open the door a chink to receive my order, and on returning would again open it a chink to say that my boots, or whatever it was, were at the door. Once I made him come in, but I saw him cross himself as, with a face of icy terror, he stepped into the room, and the sight somehow did not reassure me. Twice also he came up in the evening, when I had not rung at all, even as he came up the first night and opened the door a chink to say that my bottle of whiskey was outside. But the poor fellow was in a state of such bewilderment when I went out and told him that I had not ordered whiskey, that I did not press for an explanation. He begged my pardon profusely. He thought a bottle of whiskey had been ordered for number 23. It was his mistake entirely. I should not be charged for it. It must have been the other gentleman. Pardon again. He remembered there was no other gentleman. The other bed was unoccupied. It was on the night when this happened for the second time that I definitely began to wish that I too was quite certain that the other bed was unoccupied. The ten days of snow and sleet were at an end, and tonight the moon, once more grown from a mere slip to a shining shield, swung serenely among the stars. But though at dinner every one exhibited an extraordinary change of spirit, with the rising of the barometer and the discharge of this huge snowfall the intolerable gloom which had been mine so long but deepened and blackened. The fear was to me now like some statue nearly finished, modeled by the carving hands of these details, and though it still stood below its moistened sheet, any moment I felt the sheet might be twitched away, and i be confronted with it. Twice that evening I started to go to the Bureau— to ask to have a bed made up for me anywhere in the billiard room or the smoking room since the hotel was full but the intolerable childishness of the proceeding revolted me what was i afraid of a dream of my own a mere nightmare some fortuitous disarrangement of bed linen the fact that a swiss waiter made mistakes about bottles of whiskey It was an impossible cowardice. But equally impossible that night were billiards or bridge or any form of diversion. My only salvation seemed to lie in downright hard work, and soon after dinner I went to my room in order to make my first real counter-move against fear and sat down solidly to several hours of proof-correcting, a menial and monotonous employment but one which is necessary and engages the entire attention. But first I looked thoroughly round the room to reassure myself and found all modern and solid. A bright paper of daisies on the wall, a floor parkade, the hot water pipes chuckling to themselves in the corner. My bedclothes turned down for the night. The other bed, the electric light was burning brightly and there seemed to me to be a curious stain as of a shadow on the lower part of the pillow and top of the sheet, definite and suggestive, and for a moment I stood there again, throttled by a nameless terror. Then taking my courage in my hands I went closer and looked at it. Then I touched it. The sheet where the stain or shadow was seemed damp to the hand, So also was the pillow, and then I remembered I had thrown some wet clothes on the bed before dinner. No doubt that was the reason, and fortified by this extremely simple dissipation of my fear, I sat down and began on my proofs. But my fear had been this, that the stain had not in that first moment looked like the mere grayness of water-moistened linen. From below, at first came the sound of music, for they were dancing tonight. But I grew absorbed in my work, and only recorded the fact after a time that there was no more music. Steps went along the passages, and I heard the buzz of conversation on landings and the closing of doors till by degrees the silence became noticeable. The loneliness of night had come. It was after the silence had become lonely that I made the first pause in my work, and by the watch on my table saw that it was already past midnight; but I had little more to do-another half hour would see the end of the business; but there were certain notes I had to make for future reference, and my stock of paper was already exhausted; however, I had bought some in the village that afternoon and it was in the bureau downstairs where I had left it when I came in and had subsequently forgot to bring it upstairs. It would be the work of a minute only to get it. The electric light had brightened considerably during the last hour, owing no doubt to many burners being put out in the hotel, and as I left the room I saw again the stain on the pillow and sheet of the other bed. I HAD REALLY FORGOTTEN ALL ABOUT IT FOR THE LAST HOUR, AND ITS PRESENCE THERE CAME AS AN unwelcome SURPRISE. THEN I REMEMBERED THE EXPLANATION OF IT, WHICH HAD STRUCK ME BEFORE, AND FOR PURPOSES OF SELF-REASSUREMENT, I AGAIN TOUCHED IT. IT WAS STILL DAMP, BUT HAD I GOT CHILLY WITH MY WORK? FOR IT WAS WARM TO THE HAND, WARM AND SURELY RATHER STICKY. It did not seem like the touch of the water damp. And at the same moment, I knew I was not alone in the room. There was something there, something silent as yet, and as yet invisible, but it was there. Now for the consolation of persons who are inclined to be fearful, I may say at once that I am in no way brave But that terror, which, God knows, was real enough, was yet so interesting that interest overruled it. I stood for a moment by the other bed, and half-consciously only wiped the hand that had felt the stain for the touch of it, though all the time I told myself that it was but the touch of the melted snow on the coat I had put there was unpleasant and unclean. More than that I did not feel, because in the presence of the unknown, and perhaps awful, the sense of curiosity, one of the strongest instincts we have, came to the fore. So rather eager to get back to my room, I ran downstairs to get the packet of paper. There was still a light in the bureau, and the sensitive, on night duty, I suppose was sitting there dozing. My entrance did not disturb him, for I had on noiseless felt slippers, and seeing at once the package I was in search of, I took it, and left him still unawakened. That was somehow of a fortifying nature. The sensitive, anyhow, could sleep in his hard chair. The occupant of the unoccupied bed was not calling him to night. I closed my door quietly as one does when the house is silent and sat down at once to open my packet of paper and finish my work. It was wrapped up in an old news sheet and struggling with the last of the string that bound it. Certain words caught my eye. Also the date at the top of the paper caught my eye. A date nearly a year old or, to be quite accurate, a date fifty-one weeks old. It was an American paper, and what it recorded was this. The body of Mr. Silas R. Hume, who committed suicide last week at the Hotel Beausite, moulin Moulin-sur-Chalon, is to be buried at his house in Boston, Massachusetts. The inquest held in Switzerland showed that he cut his throat with a razor, in an attack of delirium tremens induced by drink. In the cupboard of his room were found three dozen empty bottles of scotch whiskey. So far I had read when without warning the electric light went out and I was left in what seemed for the moment absolute darkness. And again, I knew I was not alone and I knew now who it was who was with me in the room. Then the absolute paralysis of fear seized me, as if a wind had blown over my head. I felt the hair of it stir and raise a little. My eyes also, I suppose, became accustomed to the sudden darkness, for they could now perceive the shape of the furniture in the room from the light. Of the starlit sky outside. They saw more, too, than mere furniture. There was standing by the washstand between the two windows a figure, clothed only in night garments, and its hand moved among the objects on the shelf above the basin. Then, with two steps, it made a sort of dive for the other bed, which was in shadow and then the sweat poured on my forehead. Though the other bed stood in shadow, I could still see dimly but sufficiently what was there. The shape of a head lay on the pillow. The shape of an arm lifted its hand to the electric bell that was close by on the wall, and I fancied I could hear it distantly ringing. Then a moment later came hurrying feet up the stairs, and along the passage outside and a quick rapping at my door monsieur's whiskey monsieur's whiskey said a voice just outside pardon monsieur i brought it as quickly as i could the impotent paralysis of cold terror was still on me once i tried to speak and failed and still the gentle tapping went on at the door and the voice telling someone that his whiskey was there. Then at a second attempt I heard a voice, which was mine, saying hoarsely, For God's sakes, come in, I'm alone with it. There was the click of a turned door handle, and as suddenly as it had gone out a few seconds before, the electric light came back again, and the room was in full illumination. I saw a face peer round the corner of the door, but it was another face, I looked, the face of a man, sallow and shrunken, who lay in the other bed, staring at me with glazed eyes. He lay high in bed, and his throat was cut from ear to ear, and the lower part of the pillow was soaked in blood, and the sheet streamed with it. Then suddenly that hideous vision vanished, and there was only a sleepy-eyed waiter looking into the room, But below the sleepiness, terror was awake, and his voice shook when he spoke. Monsieur rang? he asked. No, Monsieur had not rung, but Monsieur made himself a couch in the billiard room. You've been listening to The Other Bed by E.F. Benson. George Bernard Shaw once said, all great truths begin as blasphemies i've enjoyed being with you and now i must go but i look forward to being with you again soon please be well and thank you for listening to me